Pompeii. You've heard of it. But what happened exactly? What were the sequence of events during the eruption? Join me for a minisode as I talk about all of this on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi, and thanks for joining me. My name's Neil, and in this minisode, I'm going to talk about the eruption of Vesuvius and how it affected both Pompeii and those in the city at the time. You might have come across an episode I did a few years ago called Pompeii Before, During and After, where I spoke about what Pompeii was like, how it developed, as well as the events during the eruption. I also spoke about some misconceptions about Pompeii, such as the dating controversy and how Pompeii wasn't necessarily frozen in time. This minisode deals with that part of the episode where I discussed the sequence of events. As you'll hear, the eruption wasn't an immediate thing. There were stages to it and a general narrative at all. And this has been built using modelling, studies and the excavations. I'm going to put this minisode, the full episode, and an episode about the preserved gardens of Pompeii on a page on my ancientblogger.com website. Just a shout out to that episode on the gardens. It's a real gem because I got to speak with an expert who studied and worked on the preserved gardens of Pompeii. This is a new area of research and it's offering some great insights as to what was grown, how and the way people use gardens in Pompeii. In short, if you're a Pompeii fan, just head over to ancientblogger.com. I'll also link to an article I did and include the papers and resources I've used for the content I've made. Anyway, with that done, I just need to say that I'm talking about a tragic event where many people lost their lives. I think we forget that sometimes when discussing Pompeii. Often people are really struck by this when they visit and they see the casts. I know I was. I'm going to start with a controversy over the date I mentioned a moment ago. We have the date of 24th of August AD 79 as the date for the eruption of Vesuvius. But in reality, there's very little which substantiates this date. In fact, there are a few arguments which dispute this. For example, take the crops and wine which was found in storage jars there. Neither would have been present that early in the year. There was an argument also about wind directions, with the debris and ash being blown in a direction which was consistent with wind directions later that year. More recently, there was a scribble in charcoal found on a wall which gave a date which corresponds to mid-October. The obvious counter to this is that this might have been from the previous year. However, this was made in charcoal and on a wall which was being decorated, so it's possible, but also unlikely. The actual evidence supporting the date is tenuous at best. Pliny the Younger famously wrote an account of his experience of the eruption and gave the date of the 24th, but he also didn't. You see, we don't have the original letter. We have copies of copies, and some don't give a date at all. But even if we had the original and this was written down, well, it was done so decades after the event. Pliny's letter is a later account, and there are even other writers such as Cassius Dio, who wrote that the eruption occurred later in the year. The way I'll approach this, and basically the way many others do, is stick to the 24th. It's what we've got. But don't be surprised if at some point in the future a new date is given. There's still a fair amount of excavation at Pompeii, so who knows what might turn up. So then, you wake up on the morning of the 24th of August, AD 79. Sunrise was around half six, and perhaps the morning went as mornings did back then. However, around midday, everything changed. It was then that Vesuvius erupted. The thermal energy released during the whole eruption was the equivalent of 100,000 Hiroshima events. 
This was manifested in a huge column of ash and debris shooting upwards, and this eventually reached a height of 20 miles. To give some perspective, the cruising altitude of most commercial airlines is between 5.5 and 7.5 miles. For those in Pompeii, the sight and the noise would have been the obvious opening to the sequence of events, but soon debris started to fall there as well. Forget the films, there was no lava flows at Pompeii. If you were stood and watching, you'd experience two features, the diminishing sunlight and the falling pumice. The diminishing sunlight is a common feature of eruptions, where the debris and the ash cloud blots out sunlight, creating a kind of darkness which swallows up the foreground. As for the pumice, this might seem underwhelming. After all, it wasn't exactly going to injure you, though I should add there would have been the occasional larger piece of debris. But that didn't mean the pumice wasn't having an effect. Falling pumice would have absorbed moisture in the air, though it might seem inconsequential. This was going to make life very difficult for those who remained and stayed around. The fall of pumice has been estimated at roughly 15 centimetres per hour. Within a few hours, leaving the city was going to be incredibly difficult. Added to the darkness, the roads would be choked with hot debris. Not nice if you're barefooted or just wearing sandals. For many, the instinct was to head indoors. There was light and water there after all. But this is where the pumice became lethal. Estimates have suggested that a layer above 40 centimetres or 16 inches of pumice on a roof or structure would start to cause structural failures. Given the estimated rate of falling debris and the falling pumice, this would first start to become a horrifying reality by late afternoon or early evening. In the study I referred to, a total of 1,044 individuals were found in Pompeii. Of these, 394 were found in the debris left by this stage of the eruption. The majority, 345, were found inside buildings. With some, the damaged skulls and bones indicated a trauma which aligned with buildings collapsing, and this is thought to be the cause of death. But not all buildings collapsed, and so by evening you might picture those who'd survived trying to rally in cover and see what had happened. The dry air combined with the ash would have made breathing arduous, and perhaps anyone with health issues would be suffering even more. As the ash continued to fall, other buildings may have given in. Cover was at a premium, assuming you wanted to risk it. Trying to escape Pompeii at this point was nigh on impossible. The familiar byways and roads were gone. Instead, you've got broken buildings and a raised layer of hot ash, possibly up to three metres. It was dark, and given the mental and physical trauma, the notion of being able to move can't have been easy. And then, where would you go exactly? This wasn't an experience anyone could well understand. If you could go, well, which direction? In Pliny the Younger's letter, this scenario is experienced by the writer himself. Though he was based in Mycenaeum, which was northwest of Vesuvius, he still experienced some of the fallout from Vesuvius, and he made to leave his villa there. But this wasn't easy, and Pliny describes the panic of those jostling to leave whilst the pumice and ash fell about them. Daylight was soon blotted out, and Pliny commented that the darkness was like that of a sealed room. In this darkness, he could hear people screaming, with some appealing to the gods. But many, he noted, weren't appealing to the gods, because they thought this was the end of the world. Pliny did escape, and when he returned, the ash was as a deep snowfall. Of course, there's a possibility that Pliny was just exaggerating. After all, he was recounting events decades later when he wrote it all down. But I don't think there's anything here which wouldn't have been the case in Pompeii. The darkness, the panic, and the horror of it all. 
For those left, the best and only option would be to stay and try and make it to the morning when hopefully it would all be over, and it would be, but not in a way anyone in Pompeii could have wished for. Back at Vesuvius, the first stage of the eruption was coming to an end, though this was far from good news. Around midnight, the column which had been continually firing up started to weaken and collapsed upon itself. All of that hot debris and gas which had been heading skywards now fell back to the earth and rolled down from the volcano. This type of feature is known as a PDC, a pyroclastic density current or a pyroclastic flow. The nature of these depends on the volcano in question. These act as superheated avalanches of gas and debris and rock, travelling at several hundred miles an hour. One fell upon nearby Herculaneum in the early hours of the morning. Herculaneum had been spared the pumice fall, but those waiting by the shore to be rescued were killed in fractions of a second by a PDC estimated at 500 degrees Celsius. The PDCs which reached Pompeii were a mixed bunch. The first three didn't deal a great deal of damage to the town. In the full podcast, I commented that they didn't make it as far as Pompeii. However, recent studies have indicated there may have been a small incursion into the city by one of them, though this study also noted that it didn't cause much in the way of damage and most likely didn't result in any deaths. The best said about these earlier PDCs was that they were jabs, and what came next, the fourth PDC, was the knockout blow. This arrived sometime around dawn, and though it wasn't a quick PDC, by PDC standards, the heat it carried was enough to cause mass fatalities. Estimates vary as the heat may have been experienced at different levels depending on where you were, but it was around 200 degrees Celsius, possibly as high as 300 degrees Celsius. Full exposure to this would have meant a swift end, but it may not have killed everyone and that's because some individuals have been found several centimetres above the thin layer of debris it left. In fact, layers of debris are vital in forming the sequence of events, so I'll briefly go over them. The various materials which fell on Pompeii resulted in distinct layers, and as one was laid above another, this gave us a sequence of events. Those 394 individuals found in the layer of pumice, around 3 metres deep, were the first to be claimed by the disaster. The PDCs then hit Pompeii, and each left its own layer. The fourth PDC, as mentioned, is associated with most of the victims of Pompeii, around 650, but again, it's argued that a few were found a bit above the layer and that they may have survived until the following PDCs. In any case, the 650 victims of that fourth PDC, or perhaps a few of them later on, give us much more insight because of where they were found. The majority, 498, were grouped together, which suggests that the survivors rallied around in an attempt to stay alive. Perhaps they knew each other or were sharing resources such as water or food. The split is roughly 50-50 between those found in the open and those in the buildings. This has been used to suggest that some were making a break for it. The timescale of the PDCs is debated, with some estimates suggesting the fourth PDC arrived at dawn, but another has pointed to a fourth PDC occurring later. Doubtless you've seen the casts of the remains, often sad and very poignant. Some exhibit a curious pose with outstretched arms, and some with their legs out as if they were sat up. Speculation about why this was ranged from a last act of defence against looters to covering the face because of choking. Perhaps the latter is more plausible, but this pose isn't unique and it's been argued in many instances that it's what's known as the pugilistic pose. Again, I go into this more in the full episode, but when a body is exposed to very high heat for a short time, 
tendons in the arms and legs can shorten, and so the body of the victim forms into a distinct pose. The reason it's called the pugilistic pose is because the arms are often found held out in front like a boxer. By the end of the eruption, Pompeii had been buried in roughly six metres of material. And the idea that people forgot about what happened and that it was only in recent times that Pompeii was rediscovered misses the point. It was known and understood by the Romans as a disaster. After all, we've got Pliny's account and the emperor of the day, Titus, created a board of ex-consuls to deal with the aftermath. There's also evidence, which I go to in the full episode, that people went back and tried to salvage what they could. The last point is worth noting because it does call into question to what extent Pompeii was frozen in time. But again, that's in the full episode. Anyway, despite the content, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you can rate or review, please do. And why not check out the page with all my Pompeii content on ancientblogger.com. Till next time, thanks for taking the time to listen. Keep safe and stay well.